Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to do a little departure from the Proverbs. Uh, This morning I've called this the road to Rome uh, in an effort to keep you up to date with current events. Sometimes we'll do a special study uh, when certain world events that point um, to the biblical prophecies concerning a one-world religion and a one-world government. This morning, I believe we are witnessing a big piece of the puzzle that will lead to both a one-world religion and a one-world government. Jesus refers to them as birth pains, markers. And sometimes they're big and sometimes they're little. But um, not since the Beatles hit New York City in 1964 have I seen such excitement, exuberance, emotion over the arrival of Pope Francis. He is the only pope ever to have spoken before our Congress He was greeted in Washington by President Obama, then on to New York. Yesterday uh, in New York, um, the line stretched from Central Park to 77th Street. For you New New Yorkers, that is quite a distance. And um, there were at least 10 wide as far as the eye could see. Uh, There was well over 100,000 people plus trying just to get a peek at uh, the the Pope. Um, yesterday and today, he's in Calvary, no, I was going to say Calvary Chapel of Philly. Joe would be mad at me at that one. <laughs> Edit that. <laughs> I'll be hearing from Joe on that one. He's probably doing the same message this morning. He probably, I think they're in Second Thessalonians or something, but, but uh, five to one, he's, he's talking about this too. But uh, he's been here all week, and now he flies back um, uh, to Rome tonight. So who is the Pope? Who is the Pope? The Pope, enthroned in Rome, claims to be the exclusive representative of God. They call him the Vicar of Christ. Rome is the headquarters, of course, of the Roman Catholic Church. The Vatican is a nation within itself, has its own army, has its own post office, And uh, they are unique in that aspect among the world religions. There are over one billion Catholics in every country on this planet. Roman Catholics claim Peter was given this commission by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, and that's the reason I chose this for our text this morning. And while I'm reading this, I'm going to We took a side trip to Israel. We went to uh, Rome. And um, I asked them to put this first picture of Peter holding the keys. And that's outside of St. Peter's Basilica, which I'll also show you this morning. But they hang their hat on Peter being the first pope because of the scriptures we're about to read in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to go back and explain them from two different points of view. Verse 18, and I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's go back a little bit closer. When, when we go to um, Caesarea Philippi, we'll be there in November, we'll actually go to the spot where Jesus uh, said this. He said earlier that they were in Caesarea Philippi in verse 13. And I do this Bible study when we, when we get there. But what we do in verse 18 is when it says, and I say unto you that you are Peter. Now, the Greek word for Peter there is Petros, and it means a stone. And then he says, and on this rock, which could, you could say is a stone, is a different Greek word. It's Petra. So now you have a stone, like this, versus the rock of Gibraltar. And that's exactly what's being said here. You are a stone, Peter, but upon this rock I will. Now, I could spend the rest of the Bible study going through the scriptures and show you how many places the Lord calls our God a rock, uh, something to build upon. So the idea of building a church on Peter, just Peter being Peter, doesn't make sense. It does make sense if you're, Jesus says, I will build my church. And so the reference should be put upon the Lord Jesus Christ instead of Peter. Now, if you put it in context, if you go back to verse 13, Caesarea Philippi is right up there on the Golan Heights. It's where the Jordan River actually has its beginning. And when he was in this region, the disciples said to him, or Jesus said, well, who do people say that I am? And um, one of them said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter, being Peter, jumps right in and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Jesus commends him on this because he got the answer right. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now he's continuing, I think, in the discussion to speak to all the disciples, not just Peter, and I'll tell you why. If you turn chapter 18, verse 18, what he says to Peter in verse 16, he says word for word to all of the disciples in verse 18. In verse 18, he's talking to all of his disciples. Assuredly, I say unto you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He says, I'll give you authority to cast out demons give you authority to heal the sick. And you could actually, if you're a born-again believer, do you know that you have the same authority to tell a person how their sins can be forgiven? Every time the gospel is preached, it's explained. And you, I could have the authority by saying, if you accept Christ as your Savior, I have the authority given to me by the Lord himself to say your sins are forgiven. And it's with that idea, he's talking with all the disciples, not just um, Peter. So I will make more cases for Peter not being the first pope as we make our way through the, the study this morning. For the first 300 years, the church was greatly persecuted by the Roman emperors. We've all seen the gladiator stories and we all have heard about the Christians being thrown to the lions. Uh, the Church of Smyrna 
was uh, a church that time-wise would have existed during the first 300 years. They were greatly persecuted. And they were persecuted by the Roman emperors. In 306 AD, Constantine, one of the Roman emperors, actually got saved. There's, there's some debate. Was, he really, was it a political move on his part, or was he genuinely converted? I don't know. I do know that the persecution, uh, because of him becoming a Christian, um, changed the, the way people lived. Constantinople, um, the capital of, uh, over by Istanbul and over there is uh, the, uh, the eastern branch of the Roman Catholic Church. Now what he did is he changed the persecution and the pagan celebrations. I could give you many and I'll only list two. Let's just take Easter and Christmas. Easter is a, a pagan holiday. Uh, the goddess of fertility. You ever wonder why they give little uh, rabbits away? <laughs> Chocolate rabbits around Easter time? There's a connection there. And um, Christmas time is actually uh, Saturnalia, or the winter solstice. It was a pagan holiday. And uh, what Constantine did is he took the pagan holidays and simply Christianized them. And anybody can do your homework. A couple books that I would recommend out of the two Babylons by Hislop. It's a thick one, but if you want to really um, do your homework on what I'm talking about this morning, I'm just scratching the surface on, on what happened in 300 AD. Now, also what happened at this time, um, there was no such thing as infant baptism until 431. What I'm going to put up on the board next is they took biblical Christianity at this time and they began um, through Roman tradition to have, and there's more than this, but there's 22 of them here this morning. I'll t- try to touch on several of them. But they were adding to uh, the church things that are simply not taught in the word of God. And I'll comment on some of these. And the consequences for not abiding to these new traditions that Rome came up with were very, very severe. Uh, The Council of Trent pronounced anathemies. Now, anathemy, let me explain the word. If the church, with the power that it had, pronounced an anathemy upon you, it means that you were to be eternally damned. Those are pretty strong words. So let's just look at a couple of them here. Infant baptism. So for the first first 431 years, there was no such thing as infant baptism. You were baptized. uh, You believed first without exception. The Bible always says believe and be baptized. Only in 431 AD did baptism become an institution of the Roman Catholic Church. You had to be baptized. They had you from the cradle to the grave. From there all the way to last rites. And that was all part of it. So from the cradle to the grave. This is what um, um, the canon says, number five, about infant baptism. If anyone says that baptism is free, that it's not necessary unto salvation, let him be anathema. Now, sometimes people say uh, that Christians, Protestant Christians, who speak and say this isn't uh, biblical, they will say, well, you're a Catholic basher by making such a statement. Well, I want that road to go both ways 
Because what, what they just said to me, I don't believe that, but they pronounced anathema upon me for saying that. So if they're going to say that about us, I say, fair enough, I don't agree with that doctrine, but let's be fair enough to say that you pronounce a heavier judgment on me for saying it, to be eternally damned. That's what anathema means. Now, the next one is the mass. That wasn't invented until 500. It's tied in with transubstantiation. This is what the canon says about um, the mass and transubstantiation. It says, if anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of or thanksgiving, or that it's a bare uh, um, commandment, (laughs) I'll get this word out as a long one, commemoration, there it is, of the sacrifice offered on the cross, but not preparatory sacrifice, or that it avails him only uh, who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, punishments, sanctification, and other necessities, then let him be anathema. Transubstantiation could only be performed by a priest. And uh, in a nutshell, they believe that every time the Eucharist or the Mass is given, that that literally becomes the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and we'll look at one couple verses there. Hebrews 10. And in fairness to the text, we're not talking about Roman Catholicism. We're talking about Judaism. Now, until Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sin one time in Judaism, they would have morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, morning prayers, evening prayers. It was done on a daily basis, and every Jew was familiar with it. The book of Hebrews was written to who? Hebrews, Jewish people. So Paul is trying to get the simple point across. You don't have to do the daily offerings anymore because Jesus accomplished it one time. Let's pick it up in verse 10. He says, by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away his sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now if I read all of chapter 9 and chapter 10, it's going to repeat this several times. Paul's making the point. When Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished. There is no longer a need for a perpetual sacrifice and that is exactly what the mass is. And that's exactly, transubstantiation means there's a change that happens. That it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And my Bible says no it doesn't. It's been done once and it's been done once for all. Let's go down to the worship of images. Well, this didn't come around until about 600 AD. Now, this is interesting to me because they do worship images and statues, primarily Mary. In doing so, they have violated the second commandment, which says in Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in it, heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or that is 
in the water or under the water. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of their fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. This is, this is what got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into trouble. You gotta bond out to the golden image. Can't do it. Commandments say we can't. Do you know that in the Catholic Bible, the second commandment is removed? Check it out for yourself. Don't believe me. And uh, what they've done to make 10 commandments is, is they took the ninth and the 10th and they stretched them out. So I've just told you something and now it's your job to find out if it's true. But to get around the worship of images, you have to deal and actually take away from the word of God. Why should that concern anybody? The last words in the Bible tells us if we add two or take away from any of the words that are written in this book, God shall take away your part. And the judgments that are in this book will be given to him. These are serious issues as far as the scriptures are concerned. All right, let's take um, um, the other one that I want you to write down as far as um, um, the mass, and that would be 1 Timothy 2.5 if you're taking notes. This one really gives Catholics a hard time because it says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It replaces that the need for there being a priest or a pope for that matter. All right. Um, one other one that I'd like to put on the screen is purgatory and indulgences and where they came from. They had a saying back in those days. Um, the primary seller of indulgences is exactly what an indulgence was. Um, was Jonathan Tetzel, and he was a Roman Catholic Dominican friar and a preacher. Um, He is renowned for granting indulgences in exchange for money which allowed the remission of temporary punishment due to sin, the guilt of which has been forgiven. He He had a saying, a sort of little jingle, and this is how it went. As a primary seller of indulgences for Rome, it is said that he said, as soon as a coin in a coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Meaning that indulgences are not just for the living, but benefit the dead as well. They say he was quite the salesman. I want to show you what they did with that money. I'm going to put up on the screen a picture of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It is breathtaking, it is overwhelming. And uh, the sheer vastness of it and the beauty of it is off the charts. Um, We had to be selective in just this one picture here. Um, But but it's really quite overwhelming. Continuing on with the celibacy of the priest. Well, here they're going to run into a problem. Because if Peter is the first pope, guess what? He was married. Well, how do we know that? Well, In Mark 1, I'll just read it to you this morning. As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon, that would be Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Peter's wife, mother, was sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So she came, so he came, Jesus, and 
took her by the hand and he lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she began to serve them. Celibacy. Um, Celibacy was not instituted for I believe it was the first thousand years if I remember right. So we had a thousand years of tradition but now all um, the authority that the Pope's words are infallible. He can come up with a new one. They do. And now in order to serve the Lord, you have to be celibate. Can you imagine the pressure that puts on a guy? Can you imagine the pressure it puts on a gal? Is it any wonder the billions of dollars of lawsuits worldwide that take place? And uh, it's an ongoing problem and an ongoing scandal for something that the Lord never intended you to be. Some people have the gift, but not, not many. Paul, Paul had it, but he was the exception to the rule. Now, uh, I was listening to, um, I think it was McGee this week, and I don't know where he came up with it, but he said 11 out of the 12 disciples were married. And I'm not sure where he got that. Maybe it's uh, um, church history, but whatever, it's not biblical, and it puts undue uh, things that should have never been put on any man or woman. Now here's a big one, this next one, that good works are necessary for salvation. There was a system that included baptism and included indulgences and including the mass and including things that you had to do, but especially the idea of good works. Now, I have not heard one word of doctrine out of Pope Francis since he's been here, not a word. But what I have heard is a lot of the social gospel. And when I say all roads are leading to Rome, this is where Protestants are heading also. They're leaving off doctrine and they're going towards a social gospel. And so when he goes to the poor, one of his messages that I heard was Jesus was a homeless person. And um, that's not quite true. That was of his own choosing. He says foxes have holes or dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, he wandered the countryside by his own choice, and so and he was um, taken, taken care of as he went. So, But this issue of, this is the big one for me, works for salvation. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans 11, picking it up, In verse six, there was a Roman Catholic priest whose name was Martin Luther. He got to Romans chapter six and he went, holy smokes, this this is uh, contrary to everything we've ever been taught. And it says, and if by grace that it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if you're saved by works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Everybody follow that? My question, is that difficult to understand? Not at all. But you can't have it both ways. Grace is grace. Works is works. And what what Paul is simply pointing out to the Romans here hit Martin Luther right between the eyes. And he had an issue with it. And thus began what we call the Protestant Reformation, which is about roughly a little more than 500 years ago. All right, let's fast forward 500 years, current time. In 1994, Charles Colson and Richard John Numas began an idea 
of wanting to once again reunite evangelicals and Catholics back together. And that's where we first started hearing it, and there was a petition going around asking uh, Protestant pastors to get on board with this. Another article that we have uh, just recently, does Rick Warren want you to come home to the Catholic Church? I'm going to put something on the screen here. Actually, Amy Spreeman wrote this article. Um, You've heard about the purpose-driven life for Catholics, but did you ever think that it would lead to a major evangelization project by the Church of Rome that targets Protestant Christians? Catholics come home. God's extraordinary plan for your life is the name of the new book that is taking Rome and the world by storm. With the incredible endorsement by Rick Warren, which signals a troubling shift towards embracing this new project. And now this is a Rick Warren quote. The mission of Tom Peterson and Catholics come home to bring souls home to Jesus, the church, is critical. Critically important during this challenging time in our history. I fully support this new evangelical project. Rick Warren author of The Purpose Driven Life. Amy goes on to say, make no mistake, the the Catholic Come Home movement is not just to bring lapsed uh, Catholics into the system of Rome. Uh, Its target is everyone, including you, Bible-believing Christians. The project's founder, Tom Peterson, has opened the doors to entice Protestants and the people of other faiths to Roman Catholicism. This visit by Pope Francis is a major step forward to this one world church and one world government. Let's face it, gang, I haven't seen anything, I said, I haven't seen anything like this since the Beatles, as far as people just going over the top. And you can't turn CNN on, you can't turn everywhere he went, everything he said, every baby he kissed. It was all gush over the top. Somebody can say amen at this point because it's certainly true. And we've been watching it all week. But here's, here's the thing that troubles me is the biblical illiteracy and not seeing what's really going on here. Um, I watched Senator uh, Baynard. I didn't know he was going to resign the next day. I don't know what's going on in this man's life. But he was, he was completely... Um, in tears, breaking down as, as, as the Pope was uh, saying something, something was going on, and I don't know if we have the full picture of it yet. But New York, um, I was in New York for a while. I lived in the village in the late 60s, early 70s, and there, there's nothing Christian about it. And all of a sudden, we have this, we have this immense popularity of this Pope, and uh, it's, it's coming at New York from a whole new angle, and people are embracing it like something I've never, ever seen in New York, including the Beatles. Because the Beatles, it was 15 and 16 and 17-year-old girls. Uh, we still have the 15 and 16 and 7-year-old girls, but now we have the boys, and now we have the grandmas and grandpas. And they don't know what the scriptures teach on this issue. They don't realize that it is a major birth pain that Jesus talked about when he says you'll, you'll know what's happening when the signs begin to 
unfold. And, and we should be able to look at this and give a biblical perspective of all the excitement that's been coming down this week in New York. Let me t- tell you some, some of the things he did say that were quote-unquote doctrinal, which they're not. Number one, Pope Fran- Francis assures atheists you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Yeah, you heard me right. And in comments likely to enhance the progressive uh, reputation, Pope Francis has written a long open letter to the founder of the Republica newspaper stating that non-believers would be forgiven by God if they followed their conscience. Quote, unquote. Number two, Pope says a personal relationship with Jesus is harmful. Quote, unquote. Then he goes on to say, but the Lord entrusted his message of salvation to humans. He's talking about himself, by the way. All of us as witnesses, our brothers and sisters, with gifts and limits, who come to us and make themselves known. This means belonging to the church. You're grafted in, and if you're a part of the church, then everything is okay. But this personal relationship with Jesus stuff, ooh, that can be harmful. How about this one? The Bible and the Koran are the same. That's this article right here. And uh, these are some of the comments that are being made. If this isn't shocking you, it should, if you, unless you've heard it before. We've been following it for a while. This one I'm going to put on the screen. And if this one hasn't woke you up yet this morning, this one will. Pope calls for a one-world government. Check this out. There's at least four or five sources that have been repeating this since June, um, June or July. This has been one of the things that he is promoting. Now, if this isn't a signpost for a one-world religion, and he's asking for a one-world government primarily under... um, um, environment issues. He sees that's the only way that it can take place to actually save the world in which we live in. Now, let me lay out for you the order of events that will bring about this one world religion. And the question has to be asked at this point, just how late is it anyway? The rapture is what Dave Hunt has always believed will be the catalyst that takes this world into such a spin, they'll they'll have no idea what to do or how to do it, and they will be open to any leaders. When the rapture comes, it will remove all true believers and will leave behind many who thought they were believers. Jesus actually talked about it. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the disciples came to him and said, Lord, what, what can we do to do the will of God? And Jesus said, believe on the one who was sent. Yeah, but what else can we do? No, believe on me. That is the work of God. Your work is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation apart from works. And if you do that, you are called justified. And you will enter into a sanctification process where he will work in you. But as far as the sin issue, No, that's already taken care of. But because a social gospel does not take away your sins, but it's extremely popular in the world in which we live today, what is he talking about? He's talking about the poor. 
He wants to talk about the homeless people, but certainly not doctrine. So what happens when all the babies on the planet disappear? What happens when all true believers are taken? Well, Rome, which at that time will inherit all the religions of the world. All true believers will have left the world scene at the time of the rapture. And this world religion, it will exist for the first three and a half years of what we call the Great Tribulation period. Then Rome will be destroyed by the Antichrist. And you ask, well, how do you know that? And I say, I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Some think, and it is a difficult chapter, that this might be one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible to unravel. And we're going to go through it quickly this morning. Revelation 17. As you look at chapter 16, we have just finished the seventh bowl judgment. And you could say that God's judgment in chapter 6 says the wrath of the Lamb has, has come. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. The division for the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19, when John was told to write the things that he had seen, that's chapter 1. Then he's told to write the things that are, present tense, chapters 2 and 3 of the church age. And then he's told to write the things that are after. The Greek word is metatata, after these things. After what things? After the things of the church. Now, for the first three and a half years, we have a vacuum. But there's still a lot of people who claim to know, or claim to be Christians. So now we have a one world religion headquartered in Rome. 17 and 18 are details. Um, the chronology here would change. We're going back into the first three and a half years. 17 and 18 are details of what have happened. The Battle of Armageddon took place in uh, the sixth bowl, and the last judgment is um, verse 21 of chapter six. So as you look at chapter 17, we're going back now, and what's being described to us is the world religion that will exist during the great tribulation. Let's pick it up in verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and he talked with me saying, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth made them drunk with the wine of her fornication. Um, Many waters, I told you earlier, that of the one billion Roman Catholics, they are on every continent of the world. They sit on many waters. Wherever you go, you will find Roman Catholicism. There are two types of fornication. There's physical fornication, and then there's spiritual fornication. When Jesus was talking to the church of Thyatira, which I believe is a symbolic of Roman Catholicism, he says, you have that woman Jezebel there who teaches my people to commit spiritual fornication. Well, what's Jezebel all about? 
Well, she was the one who introduced Baal worship to Israel and married Ahab. So it's spiritual. We have spiritual fornication. And um, in this case, it involves false doctrine and adding things that the scriptures never added and thus uh, making this church a harlot and spiritually a fornicator. That's what verses one and two are saying. Now, verse three. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The woman here is Rome and the beast will be the Antichrist and those that are reigning with him. And we'll entangle that as we make our way through the chapter. Which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. Go down to verse nine and we'll uh, explain the symbolism right away. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the, ro- the woman sits. Rome is known as the city of seven hills. And so, yes, there's symbolism, but almost without exception, it's either explained in the book of Daniel or in the chapter. In this case, it's explained for us in verse nine. The seven heads and ten horns. Now, verse four tells us The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, uh, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Um, Let's look at the colors colors here, scarlet and purple and gold and precious stones. It is reserved, primarily these colors, for the Pope and the Cardinals. The inner cloak of the Pope is scarlet, his carriage is scarlet, the carpet on which he treads is scarlet, the hats, cloaks, stockings of the Cardinals are scarlet, archbishops wear a purple robe. But what John sees here so undoes him in verse six, John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Here's John, and here's supposed to be the church, but the church is responsible for martyring the true church. I I could go on, this is another reason why you need to to pick up Dave's book that gets into more detail here. Let me just give you um, a a couple paragraphs of of the martyrism that took place um, during this period of time and throughout Roman Catholic history. Pope Urban II, 1088 to 1099, uh, he was the inspirer of the first crusade, decreed that all heretics were to be tortured and killed. That became a dogma of the church. Acclaimed as the angelic doctor, even Thomas Aquinas taught that non-Catholics are heretics, could after being warned a second time be legitimately killed. His exact words are, they have merited to be excluded from the earth by death. Such were the fate of millions. They were real people, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. 
They all had their own hopes and dreams, passions and feelings, many with a faith that could not be broken by torture or by fire. Remember that this terror, this evil of such proportions that it's unimaginable today. Well, actually, it's not imaginable today because ISIS is doing the same thing, saying either you convert or this is what will happen. And none of that, of course, would ever be alluded to or spoken of during this, this tour. All right, let's pick it up in verse seven through nine. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast which carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw, that was and is not, will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. For they see the beast, notice this, that was, and then he was not, and then he is again. And when you go, what does that mean? Just flip back to Revelation 13 and go to verse three and it's talking about the Antichrist. He says, I saw the head, it had a mortal head wound and the deadly wound was healed. In other words, he was killed. He was, now he was not. And, and, uh, then, and then he is again because it was healed. And all the world marveled, followed the beast, Notice, so they worshiped who? The dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now go back to chapter 17. So when we read about the beast, it says he was, then he was not, and then he came back to life again and then he was. And what's the result of this? All the world begins to worship him. He doesn't like the idea that there's other worship going on that's not directed towards him. So after three and a half years of this, he now goes after this, what's left of so-called the church. Now here, here is a mind which has wisdom, verse nine. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Rome, can be, you can look it up anywhere, just Google the city of seven hills and see what comes up. It'll say Rome. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and another has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. This is where you have to know the book of Daniel in order to understand this verse. Because Daniel actually tells you the world kingdoms. He leaves out Egypt. He leaves out Assyria because he's living during the Babylonian captivity. So with Babylon, you got three. Then you have the Medo-Persian four, the Grecian five, and then the Roman. So you have five up to the Medo, uh, up to Greece. One is, current tense, that would be Rome, and then another one that's going to come. And then it goes on and talks about him, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Three and a half years, he has been given his authority for the second half of the tribulation. And when the beast that was and is not is himself the eighth and is of the seventh and goes into perdition. 
And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received no kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as king with the beast. This is not yet on the horizon. Uh, this this uh, ten world global system, the revived Roman Empire, that he will oversee. This is Robert Congdon's book, The European State, which I highly recommend. He's from Europe. As he watches this all come together from his vantage point. They're going to be of one mind, verse 13, and they will give their power and the authority to the beast, the Antichrist. They will make war with the lamb at the um, second coming of Jesus Christ, and the lamb will overcome them. Good news there. Good time for an amen there. It's heavy stuff. The Lord's going to win. And he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and those who are with him, here we are, are called, chosen, and faithful. And he said to them, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And as I said earlier, the Roman Catholic Church is worldwide on every continent. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot. They're gonna hate this institution, this world religion. And they wanna make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. Now, this is what clinches it. The woman, the woman whom you saw is that great city, Mystery Babylon. I've heard people say, you know, it's really the United States of America is Babylon. Here's the problem with that. It's not a city. It's a country. And what we have in here is clearly um, the city of seven hills. And the woman which you saw is a great city which present tense reigns over the kings of the earth. John wrote this in 96 AD. Who was ruling over the kings of the earth in 96 AD? Rome. So that's the slam dunker right there. The city that we're talking about here that will be judged because of its spiritual fornication after the true church is taken, is allowed to be judged by the Lord. Now, let me close this up this morning by something I read on the 23rd when I was reading my wisdom for today. Gang, don't, don't let this week pass with get, and get what's really happening here. We have people that are just over the top with emotion, gushing, oozing, Loving, it's the greatest moral man that has ever walked the planet. No, 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 he's a signpost. When you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption is drawing nigh. That's what's happening here. Oh yeah, he called for a one world government all at the same time. Chuck put it this way and I'll close with this this morning. It's from 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine. Living in expectancy. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Chuck says, I'm convinced that God intended for every generation to believe Jesus is coming in their time. Why? Because he wants us to live in the expectancy of his return. When we believe his coming is imminent, that means a rapture could happen at any time, 
We have this urgency to bring the gospel to the world. The realization that time is short motivates us to fulfill the commission Jesus left us. Keep your every touch with this world as light as possible. The awareness of his imminent return also gives us the right perspective concerning worldly things. When you know that the curtain of this life could close at any moment and the curtain to eternity could lift in the blink of an eye, it helps you keep a light touch on worldly things. Good time for an amen. You are not as apt to put down roots here. More, more like the pilgrim type mentality. We're just passing through. You are not likely to, to become materialistic. Anticipating the return of Jesus has a purifying effect on our individual lives and on the church as a whole. When he comes, we don't want to be engaged in an activity that is contrary to his wishes. We want to be busy building up the kingdom, busy using what he's given us for his glory. We don't want to waste our time indulging in sorrow or in pleasure. We don't want to waste time amassing possessions. Time is short. The world is passing away. Give yourself and your time and your energies and your resources to the things that are eternal. Live for the kingdom of God and live forever. Amen? Let's stand. We'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you as we got a little sidetracked this morning because of the events that happened this past week in our country. Lord, thank you that you've given us a biblical perspective of all this and that we can um, meditate upon the things we looked at this morning. Thank you for the Bible, Lord, that clearly lays these truths out. And um, Lord, I just pray for any of this morning that um, are just unaware of what's really happening and maybe even got caught up with all the emotion and excitement of this. Lord, we pray for so many of these people that they sense there's this emptiness and they think that this institution can somehow fill it when only you can. So Lord, I pray for all these people and we pray for ourselves that, that um um, this nearness of your coming would have a purifying effect on us. Lord, bless our fellowship as we go this week. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.